You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to America's Web Radio and another episode of The Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and today we've got a great show for you. We're going to talk about what this election is all about, and this election is all about socialized medicine. Are we going to accept socialized medicine as our medical policy in this country, or are we going to reject it? And for all of my listeners out there who are used to listening to me, you know that we are absolutely opposed to socialized medicine for a variety of reasons. And... We are advocates for free market medicine because free market medicine gives you the highest quality health care at the lowest price with the most choices and the greatest innovation, whereas socialized medicine is a one-size-fits-all, government-run, top-down, draconian, very limited, very costly health care policy, and we do not want it in this country. And, you know... I try to keep this show focused primarily on healthcare, and I don't really want to delve into politics a lot because I want to really talk about the medicine. It's my passion. I've been in healthcare for almost 30 years now. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm a practicing orthopedic surgeon with a large private practice in the Atlanta area. Uh, I have five clinics and a surgery center. I've been practicing medicine from coast to coast. I went to medical school in the Midwest, and I've evolved as a person, learning a lot about the way the world works, and I've also been able to see medicine from the inside and understand just why free market medicine is just so important for not just our health care, but for our freedom as human beings, and why we simply have to resist this constant attack, this constant attempt by people to force socialized medicine on this country. You know, we've talked about it often on this show that if you look back at Plato, Plato was a philosopher who was an advocate for what we would call socialized medicine. He believed that the delivery of healthcare should be for the benefit of the state, and he actually believed in a top-down uh, system that put very little emphasis on the individual and put all of its emphasis on what's best for the state. Fortunately, in the United States, our healthcare system has primarily been predicated on Hippocrates, which focuses on the doctor-patient relationship and the importance of individual health care. And our doctor-patient relationship is a system where the doctor's f- fidelity and all of your efforts are geared towards the benefit of the patient. And we don't think about our patients in terms of the state or some bigger entity. Now, with the imposition of more and more government regulations and the control of of our health care by the government in socialized medicine, unfortunately, doctors have lost a lot of control in their ability to manage patients, and this has had really significant effects on the deterioration of our healthcare system. And as I can tell you, I've been in this game for almost 30 years, and I can see a, a, a cataclysmic decrease in the quality, access, and cost of our healthcare just in my uh, short career. And when I was coming onto the scene, the generation ahead of me was telling me that the, the, the system had already collapsed 
um, to a point where they no longer wanted to participate. So we have an election coming up. If you vote for one side, you're going to get socialized medicine. That's a fact. We are almost there. The passage of the Affordable Care Act was essentially uh, a gateway to socialized medicine. And we have an opportunity uh, with this upcoming election to promote policy changes that will foster free market health care and the expansion of our health care, which is going to increase quality, <clears throat> increased access, decrease costs, and promote innovation. And we're going to talk about that. As you guys know, we've been talking a lot about the COVID pandemic in the last several shows. And I think COVID has been really good at illustrating all of the problems uh, that we've had with socialized medicine. Now, medical care is what we call a scarce resource. Uh, there's not an unlimited supply of health care. There's not enough for everybody to have everything all the time. And so it's what we call a scarce resource, like housing, like clothing, like food. Um, all of these things are scarce resources. And we know through <clears throat> thousands and thousands of years of human history, <coughs> excuse me, there are only two ways to allocate scarce resources. One is through free markets, and the other is through a government rationing body. Now, in a free market healthcare system, we're talking about a system that involves an infinite number of wants, needs, and desires by consumers that are provided and attended to by an infinite number of ideas by producers and suppliers. And when we go into a free market relationship, we're looking at a deal that is good for the buyer and good for the seller. And through a, a, a competition, we, the free market, always provides what the consumer wants in the volume that it wants. And the competition is what leads the cost to be appropriate. And by appropriate costs, if anybody wants to go back and reread Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, we know that the cost is uh, going to be associated with, uh, you know, rent, profit, um, and the cost of labor. And these are the things that lead to the cost of goods and services. And it has been promoted by the free market. We know that the free market has done more to lift uh, people out of poverty and to create the greatest standard of living that we have ever seen. It is the fairest way to allocate resources. And one of the worst ways to do it is with a government rationing body. Now, we've always had a penetration of government control in our healthcare system uh, since my entire career. And we see government control in the form of Medicare, Medicaid, the VA system, uh, S-CHIP. Now, I am not here to tell you that there should be no uh, government safety net in healthcare. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that we should do more to promote uh, free market solutions. And the reason that we need to do that is by promoting free market healthcare solutions, we create a system where healthcare is, is um, very expansive. There's lots of different options. And the prices are low, 
and it creates a system where the most people are able to provide for themselves in terms of health care, and it leaves the smallest number of people that need a safety net. The problem is we have allowed our safety net to grow so much that it has essentially pushed out any form of free market. Now, I'm fortunate in my practice that I have a largely free market practice, and there are a variety of reasons why I've been lucky to escape. A lot of it has to do with the amount of time that I've been in the game. Uh, I was also, a lot of times, uh, people will tell me one of the dumbest things I ever did was right when I came out of training with no business experience, I started my first practice. I went out of business uh, within the first five years, and a lot of that had to do with uh, my lack of business knowledge, uh, but also a lot of it had to do with the ingrained corruption in the institution of healthcare. Anyway, we look down the road 20 years later and I've learned a lot. And just because I've been working in this system for so long, I managed to just escape all of the government regulations that really are preventing free market medicine from flourishing in this country. And I am determined to do what I can to educate people and to fight for the expansion of free market health care. Now, as we talked about, um, when you look at government-run health care, you're talking about a rationing body that's uh, you know a one-size-fits-all, top-down, a government-run system. It usually is very limited and very costly, and it's because of a variety of different things. But the way it starts is, in a government system, you basically have a relatively small number of people trying to come up with solutions for an infinite number of uh, wants, needs, and desires. And it's simply not possible. If you... Um, refer to Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. He talks about that an economy is an infinite number of people, their wants, needs, and desires couldn't possibly be managed and supplied by a small number of people, not one person and not even a small group of people. It requires a market. And just to kind of put it in perspective, my offices are in Atlanta, and I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I've been practicing for 30 years. And there are so many things that are unique to orthopedic surgery, to the area of Atlanta, to the patient population that I have, that I have learned just through the practice of medicine. I mean, there are things, and it's not just me, all doctors. There are things that I know. It's really all of people in any endeavor by practicing your craft, you learn things and you're able to deduce things and figure out things that are not in the textbooks and are not going to be in the textbooks for a long time because it takes a while for that information to sort of percolate, sort of work through years of um, of trial and error, and then for somebody to come behind and take that information and put it in an organized report we call a textbook or a paper. Um you know, a lot of times people will tell me, well, how do you know that's correct? And I, I'll say, well, it just looks good. And it, they'll say, well, explain it to me. And it's difficult, right? It's uh, the analogy that we often give is describe to me a pretty girl. Well, I can't really tell you what it is, but when I see it, I know what it is. Um, healthcare is a lot like that. Now, a government-run body simply cannot do that. They make decisions 
that are often based on politics. And the reason is the money is coming from the government, and meaning from the government, mean the government confiscates it from the citizens. So the tax base gets their money confiscated. That money is then filtered through a government body that then decides which categories of medicine deserve resources. And those decisions are often made by people that go to the government officials and oftentimes influence them with campaign contributions and other things to have the government see things in their favor. And so what you get is a certain... You get a certain... uh, class of people or class of businesses that curry favor with government officials that influence them to ration uh, resources in one direction and away from another one. And let's use something that happened in COVID to sort of illustrate this point. We have this pandemic hit, COVID-19, obviously everybody's aware of it. And as a physician, we've talked about it uh, at length on this show. I've been paying attention to this from day one. Obviously, as a business owner, as a physician, um, as a parent, uh, and also as a citizen, I didn't want to get this COVID. I've been following it very closely, and I had to figure out ways to learn about this disease and protect my patients and protect my staff. And because I'm an educated person, because I went to a school that trained me how to think critically, I was able to gather information that was available I could look at uh, research that was going on in Italy early on uh, to discover right away that COVID-19 was affecting primarily older people with comorbid conditions and that younger people were largely uh, had a small, very small risk of dying from this. And this became obvious to me almost immediately. But the politics of this problem immediately took over. And I started to notice right on that when I was becoming aware that this disease was affecting people in their 70s and 80s, primarily with comorbid conditions, and was sparing younger people and in in our school-aged children, was sparing them so much so that our kids have a five-time less chance of dying of COVID than dying of typical influenza, The media was not giving us that information, and you have to ask yourself why. Well, there's a medicine called hydroxychloroquine, and for those of you who already know this story, forgive me, but for those of you who don't know, hydroxychloroquine is a medication that's been FDA-approved for 65 years. It's been... um, Uh, one of the safest drug profiles that we've ever seen. We give it for prophylaxis to people who are going to go into uh, regions of the world that have malaria. We use it as malaria prophylaxis. The medicine is commonly used to treat uh, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and other diseases. Um, It's a very commonly used drug, meaning over the 65 years of its FDA approval, billions of doses have been administered. And so we have a very good working knowledge of this medication, and it's literally about as safe as a multivitamin. Along comes the COVID pandemic, and there are people doing research out there, and there's already plenty of research that suggests that taking hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment for COVID-19 given early, early in the disease and taken in combination with zinc and sometimes an antibiotic called azithromycin. As a practicing physician, a community physician that had access to an internet and a Google search, I was able to gather this information almost instantaneously. And uh, unfortunately, the news media 
didn't let us know that hydroxychloroquine was effective. And early on, I thought to myself, well, this is odd. Why are they not telling us that this 65-year FDA-approved medicine may be helpful? I mean, I would take it just based on that. I mean, you know, you have this disease out there, COVID-19, that at the time we didn't know how deadly it was, but the media was doing everything in its power to make us believe that it was as deadly as could be. Um, And so I just wanted hydroxychloroquine and it became difficult to get it. Why? Because politics entered in this. And the way it did, and I'm just going to tell you, there's a company called uh, Gilead that's a pharmaceutical company that produces a drug called Rendesmavir. Now, Rendesmavir is a medication newly developed that is also designed to treat COVID-19. There's one study that shows a slight decrease in hospital stay, so not a great study. There are over 50 studies that are um, very good, high-quality studies that show the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, and yet the government won't let us use that. But this rendesmavir with the one study uh, was promoted. And when when uh, President Trump uh, stated that hydroxychloroquine might be effective at treating the coronavirus, the stock of the company Gilead dropped by $21 billion. Now, we're not going to get into whether or not you believe me or if you think these things are related. What I'm trying to do is illustrate the point. Rendesmavir is not a generic medicine. It costs $3,120 for a five-day dose. Obviously, this company, Gilead, has a vested interest in not having hydroxychloroquine be effective because hydroxychloroquine is a medication that is... um, it's very safe. It's been around for a long time, and it's cheap. It's twenty dollars for for a course of treatment versus three thousand one hundred and twenty dollars for a course of rendesmavir. And so, what happened? Well, what we saw was fake data was provided to the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, the number one and two most respected medical journals in the world. They published these studies that said that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective, but that it was dangerous. Based on these two studies in the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet, the World Health Organization immediately stopped all testing on hydroxychloroquine. The CDC came out against hydroxychloroquine. The FDA revoked its emergency use use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. This then allowed blue state governors a predicate to basically ban the use of hydroxychloroquine. Most doctors who are employed by hospital systems were told by their hospitals that they would not be allowed to prescribe hydroxychloroquine. And so based on these two fake phony studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet, Hydroxychloroquine was ostensibly removed from the marketplace. And people in, in, in blue states were simply unable to get hydroxychloroquine. Now, again, I'm not here to litigate whether or not you believe this. What I'm trying to do is show you the illustration of how this works. When the government controls your health care, the government controls the dollars, they also um, can be... You know, for lack of a better word, we speak plainly on this show. They can be bought off. There's no way that the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet got these this fake phony data published 
uh, and by their peer review process uh, by accident. This had to be some sort of pay for play. Now, I don't have uh, proof of that, but I can just tell you that I've published scientific research over the years. I know many people have. If you've published scientific research, you know how how very difficult it is. The peer review process, especially at the number one and two medical journals on the face of the earth, is incredibly rigorous. So the fact that these two uh, studies were published based on fake phony data, and just to close the loop on that, what happened was uh, smart doctors out there like Dr. James Todaro in California – uh, realized as as did I and others when they were reading these papers in the New England Journal of Medicine that they didn't pass the smell test. There were just so many things about it that couldn't possibly be true. And when independent parties demanded to see the research data produced by this company, Rendesmavir, they simply couldn't produce it. And the reason was because they didn't have it. It was made up stuff. And so the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet had to retract their their studies. Now, you might say, okay, well, he got retracted. Yeah, but the damage is done. In fact, we still don't have free use of hydroxychloroquine in the country because of the way the government got involved in this. And they based it all on these fake, phony studies. And when you have a government entity controlling our health care, it is easier for special interests to go in. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be a payoff in, in, a, in an illegal sense, but but when when you have a government entity that is in control of resources, they can be influenced. In a free market, there isn't. And the reason is because when I interact with a patient in a free market setting, I have one fidelity, and that is to my patient. If the patient doesn't feel that I am working in their best interest, or even if they don't feel that my opinions are best for them, they are free in a free market to go see another doctor and get another opinion. And that's the other thing that's so important about medicine. The proponents of socialized medicine act like for every injury and illness, there's only one method of treatment. That is simply not true. You could have an injury or an illness where 10 great doctors all chime in and have 10 different amazing options and it's up to the patient to be informed by their doctors that's what doctor means is teacher to teach your patient about their illness and how to treat it and individuals can make those decisions in a government system they have one size fits all you have one way to treat something and if you don't like it that's just too bad if you don't like the doctor in front of you that's too bad there's no incentive for the doctor to Make sure that your needs are being attended to because they're employed essentially by the state. Or in this case, they're employed by a hospital system that's controlled by the government because that's where the rules come from, that's where the financing comes from, and that's where the regulation comes from. Now, if you look at what's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, our hospital systems are still not functioning according to the science. In fact, every time I go to the hospital now, that is the one place where they're managing the facts the least appropriately. These mask mandates, I, I can't tell you enough. I, I've been counseled by others to drop the masks, that uh, I'm offending people and all this sort of stuff. I'm sorry. I don't want to live in a world where I can't say that when we go to a restaurant and you put your mask on to walk to the table and then you take your mask off to eat your food, 
if you want to go to the bathroom, you got to put your mask on to walk to the bathroom. You come back to the table, you take it off, you finish eating, and then you take your mask, you put it back on while you leave the restaurant and go outside. I just need people to please admit that can't possibly be doing anything. And yet these are the policies that are taking control of us because people are afraid of the politics. And that is the number one problem with socialized medicine is once politics get involved, then the doctor-patient relationship is essentially dissolved because the doctor-patient relationship doesn't care about politics. Let me give you another example. I have a patient right now who's got a very, very difficult problem. I'm going to be operating a little later. Um, he, he's in a lot of pain. He's in a lot of pain. And listen, there are lots of patients out there that are in a lot of pain. An opioid medication is... Um, is a tool of medicine that is very important. And if you've ever had illness or injury or surgery or something like that, if you've ever been in excruciating pain, the ability to control that pain is is priceless. And I, I've been there myself. I've had uh, injuries and surgeries. And I'm telling you that the ability to control pain is incredibly important. Um Unfortunately, politics took over opioids. We And I don't want to get into the politics. Maybe we'll do a show one day talking about uh, the opioid crisis. Uh, in fact, that would be a great idea. But for now, just suffice to say, when I first started my training, I was we were coming off an era where doctors apparently were not paying very much attention to pain. And so we were trained that pain is what we call the fifth vital sign. So heart rate, blood pressure, uh, respiration, um, and then they wanted us to add pain. So it was something, and you know, vital signs are vital. That's what we always uh, say in medicine. We'll tell students, why do we check the vital signs? And they'll be thinking, uh, and then we'll say the answer is because they're vital. They are important. They give you important information about how a patient is doing. And so to include pain was, was I thought, smart and important. And is 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 a major aspect of taking care of patients. Um, as time went on, there's an opioid ap- uh, epidemic that's taking place, and I would just tell you, without getting into it, the politics of the opioid crisis has affected our policy on opioids, and so now what we've done is <clears throat> we've essentially... Um, made it very difficult to to provide appropriate narcotics treatment for patients. So I'll have patients that are up on the floor, and I used to be able to sit down and talk to nurses about a strategy for patients if their pain goes a certain way, do this with medicines. And, you know, usually at night, uh, the medicine that I used in the operating room is starting to wear off, and so the pain would go up, and so you'd need to add medication. And there was a whole strategy that you had to implement in order to maintain control of a patient's pain. Well, with the one-size-fits-all government-run um, takeover of healthcare, where they've tried to make medicine a cookbook scenario, we're no longer allowed to have these conversations with nurses. We're forced to put uh, notes in the chart. We have these uh, pre uh, ordained these pre-written order sets that we have to choose choose from that may not be appropriate for a patient. And I have this person that has 
a, a, a ton of nuance to them that make them very difficult to control their pain. And I am simply unable to work my way through the hospital, hospital bureaucracy to control this pain. Now, another thing that's important about pain, and this is another one of these things that's inside baseball, the management of pain is is complicated and takes a lot of energy and effort. And <clears throat> when I first um, when I first started practicing, you know, I'd finish surgery, I'd go into the recovery room, and sometimes my patients would wake up in more pain than I liked. And I didn't want them to do that. You know, their perception of their whole experience is my name. And so I had a vested interest in learning and coming up with ways to manage their pain. As an employed physician, I represent the hospital and we don't really have a doctor-patient relationship. That effort and energy is sort of secondary to me. And so doctors tend to put less effort or they could put less effort into managing a patient's pain control. And it's just one piece of evidence where the doctor-patient relationship is so important for you to get the type of health care you deserve. Now, we're going to get into this more when we come back from the break. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. You're listening to me on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back, everybody, to America's Web Radio. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. And today we were talking about socialized medicine versus free market medicine. Right before the break, we were talking about one of the problems with socialized medicine is that the government controls everything. And it's a top-down, one-size-fits-all system that is not very attendant to the needs of the individual 
And more importantly, government-run healthcare is very influenced by politics. And once politics gets involved, our medicine gets ruined. And what we were talking about is the opioid crisis and how the opioid crisis has become political. There are a lot of political influences on how we uh, talk about and use opioids and the practical ramifications of this political influence on opioids is it's made really difficult uh, for doctors to manage patients' pain. And I'm just telling you that uh, there are patients out there, and for those of you out there, patients that are in chronic pain management or that have uh, been to uh, an emergency room or something with a very serious injury and you haven't been adequately treated for your pain, this is largely because of the influence of politics on our uh, medical policy. Now, I've now in the last few years in this uh, effort to attack the opioid crisis and to solve the problem, which, by the way, I totally disagree that the way they're attacking it is appropriate. They're going after people who are using doctor-prescribed narcotics when, in fact, the opioid crisis is really coming from illegal narcotics that are being smuggled into the country. That, again, is a subject for another day. But the point is the government regulations on the use of narcotics are taking control out of my hands. And I've had 30 years of dealing with patients, uh, people who are addicted to drugs and all kinds of patients. I understand how these medications work, and I understand how people suffer in, uh, with pain. Um, and so the penetration of government-run health care has a negative effect on our health care at multiple levels. And let me just give you an example. When I was a kid, my mother was a trauma nurse. And in her day, she went to a four-year school, I believe, as Mass General. And she was a really great nurse. She uh, worked in a trauma center. She was smart. She knew who, how to do a lot of things. And as I started getting older, she would come home over the years and be very frustrated at how they were replacing they were de- first of all they were decreasing the reimbursement for nursing and so people uh, eventually decided eh, i don't really want to become a nurse and so you couldn't encourage people to go into nursing for the prices that they were be- willing to pay and so what they did was they started hiring people that were less trained they called them lpns forget what that stands for, but it's basically like a nursing assistant. And my mother used to complain that as you're bringing these people in, they don't know how to do anything because they're inadequately trained. The doctors, recognizing that my mother was fully trained, would always go to her. And so what her my mother's reward for being very good at her job was that everybody gave her all the work to do and avoided going to the people who were inexperienced. And for you nurses out there who have experienced this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, the same thing has happened with doctors. As the government has taken over health care and controlled the dollars, the government decides which doctors they value and which ones they don't and also decides how much they're going to reimburse. And so what happens was they um, realized that doctors refused to do certain tasks and the system, because there were no doctors there to do the work, would replace them with lesser trained providers like physicians assistants or nurse practitioners. And you can see this going on in the emergency room. And listen, I love my nurse practitioners and I love my PAs. That's not what I'm saying. There's a role for them. But 
becoming a doctor and going to medical school is a lot of training and a lot of work and a lot of experience. And there are just simply things that doctors are better able to do than lesser trained people. And in my view, it should be the market that decides where that is. But unfortunately, what we have is the government. So you got the government valuing certain uh, things in medicine and not valuing others. And when you don't value something, you get less of it. So for example, in the emergency rooms, um, for 20 years or so, uh, a shoulder dislocation is a common problem that somebody goes to the emergency room for. So they, uh, you know, patient will dislocate their shoulder. They go to the emergency room, their shoulder's out. You usually have an experienced... Am I back? A little power outage there. Anyway... Uh, you have uh, usually an experienced emergency room doctor and relocating a shoulder for the most part uh, is an easily uh, accomplished task by a trained physician. So I would say early in my career, I didn't get called in that often to reduce a shoulder because the doctor in the emergency room was able to reduce the shoulder. Now, every now and then you get one that's complicated and it requires an orthopedic surgeon. Well, I was on call not too long ago, and I got called in by a patient for an irreducible shoulder dislocation. And for those of you who are not educated in medicine, that means a shoulder that is dislocated and will not go back in the socket. We call it an irreducible shoulder dislocation. So I come in to see the patient, and I want to say it was probably 9 or 10 o'clock at night on a weekend, and the patient was just absolutely miserable. And I went in to examine him, and the patient said to me, I'm just... I'm just done. I'm so, I'm in so much pain. I'm so miserable. I, um, you know, they've been messing with me all day long and I, I just, I cannot take it anymore. And it took me one second to relocate the shoulder. And she looked at me and she said, oh my God, I wish they'd have called you 12 hours earlier. Well, that was a function of the government takeover of healthcare bringing less experienced people in to manage it on the emergency room side, unable to take care of a minor problem, and as a result, the patient suffered. This kind of situation goes on all the time. In a free market scenario, people don't want to wait 12 hours to get their shoulders relocated, and so a competitive free market system would have doctors that are able to reduce shoulders appropriately, and you wouldn't be left sitting there for 12 hours, And which brings me to another aspect of free market medicine that is completely absent from government-run healthcare, and that's what we call the discipline of failure, right? In free markets, you have what we call a discipline of failure, meaning if you're an engineer and you build a bridge, and that bridge is not does not work because you didn't follow the physics properly and you didn't follow all of the engineering and you didn't have the engineering knowledge and you weren't very good at your job. You built that bridge and it collapsed. That would be the last bridge you built. In government, they don't have the discipline of failure. They'll just keep building bridges that just keep collapsing and they'll just get more money, more time, uh, and they'll probably develop a new agency to oversee building. And you get this waste of money that does not give you any increase in the quality um, of your product. And a lot of people realize the last election, uh, presidential election, was predicated on what we call the forgotten man. Now, the forgotten man is a book written by Amity Shales, a great author, about the true history of the Great Depression. 
And the Forgotten Man is basically, you know, the way our history books uh, nowadays, at least, like to teach the Great Depression and FDR's management with this government penetration was that, you know, FDR sort of got us out of the Depression by imposing um, government um, um, agencies to confiscate money from the tax base and redistribute it as they see fit. And what they left out was, sure, you took money from somebody and gave it to another person, but what happened to the person who had that money taken from them? So, for example, just imagine FDR comes up with his department of digging ditches and his department of filling in ditches. So you get one group of people that are paid money to dig holes in the ground. Then you pay another group of people that are paid to fill those holes back in. At the end of the day, you have confiscated that money, you've given it away, and you have nothing to show for it. In a free market system, when people that are inventive and industrious and have vision, uh, they take that money and they create wealth they create innovation, they expand goods and services that the market wants. If they're successful, meaning they've succeeded in the discipline of failure, the market will send more resources to them, they'll make more money, we'll get more of that product. People who are involved in endeavors that are not successful, that are not bringing in money to them because the market doesn't want it, will then allocate their resources to go into whatever endeavor is making money. And by creating that competition, the cost comes down. And you get higher quality, more innovation. You get um, exactly what the consumer wants. And things that the consumer doesn't want goes away. But in government-run healthcare, you don't have that. The good money goes after the bad. And let me just give some examples from COVID. Now, the politics got involved in COVID, and I knew that this was going to happen as I was following this. We started following the deaths. I did too, early on. I immediately looked to Italy because they were having sort of that first experience, South Korea as well. And it became obvious almost immediately that the vulnerable people were patients in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions. We saw very early on that school-aid children were largely spared by this disease and people in the middle had a risk that was less than the flu. So I thought, okay, that is great news. But the politics got involved and we implemented lockdowns, mask mandates, which people didn't like. People's businesses went away forever. Uh, we took the greatest economy in human history and basically we self-inflicted a, a stop and crushed it. People's lives were ruined by this. Now, just imagine if you're a politician. I just implemented these lockdowns and masks that, by the way, have not been shown to be effective. Now, can you imagine a politician going and having to tell the public, hey, listen, I know we implemented these lockdowns and masks. I know you lost your business and you went bankrupt. Uh, and we're sorry, but it turns out we didn't, uh, those were not effective. I knew right away that was never going to happen. Once we started these draconian lockdowns and pushing these mask mandates and the testing, that once the ball got rolling, a government entity is unable to adjust. And so what we saw, and I'm just going to go over a few things I was jotting down uh, before the show, but first of all, we implemented lockdown. Now, lockdown is not based in any science. It was 
it was a policy that was put together by computer modelers over the objections of epidemiologists who said that the consequences of these lockdowns were going to be much more severe than any perceived benefit. Uh, There was no science behind it, but yet we went down this road. Uh, We started doing massive testing, and I've illustrated on this show over and over again that there has been fraudulent testing for a variety of reasons. These testing companies have tested, and this is not my opinion, by the way. This has all been admitted by the CDC, all these things. They're testing uh, a lot of these tests that were supposedly testing for COVID-19 were actually turning positive for coronavirus that causes the common cold. The CDC was busted conflating tests that uh, were patients that had antibody tests with PCR tests, which are basically combining people that are immune to the disease with people who may be infected. Um, We know that there's a false positive rate with these tests. We know that there has been financial incentive to hospitals to diagnose people with COVID, even when they don't have COVID, uh, because they were going to get reimbursed more. So the uh, American Medical Association that manages our CPT codes came out with an emergency code for COVID that was reimbursing hospitals at 100% uh, with no copay from the patient. And that's important because if there's no copay from the patient, then there's no complaint from the patient. Uh, and so for a while there, hospitals were getting reimbursed up to $76,000 a patient for a COVID diagnosis. The, the, the regulations specifically stated that COVID COVID did not have to be the um, did not have to be the primary cause of the patient's admission, and you didn't even need a positive test to diagnose COVID. You just needed a suspicion. Well, I'm just here to tell you, as person running a business, if you're going to pay me at 100 percent, no questions asked, you can bet I'm always going to err on the side of diagnosing COVID. So now we have this number, 208,000. Uh, deaths attributed to COVID, and and Joe Biden said it a bunch of times at the at the debate. And I'm here to tell you this is absolutely ridiculous. We have no idea what the numbers are. The CDC just recently reported something like only six percent of those 208,000 had only COVID. Okay, only six percent. Now I'm not saying only six percent of people of that two, of hundred uh, and eight thousand were uh, died. Uh, because of COVID, what I'm saying is only 6% of them had only COVID. So what I am telling you is we have no idea the number of people that were going to die, whether they had COVID or not. We've already seen reports from John Solomon in just the news and others that they were taking patients that died of gunshot wounds to the head, patients that died of Parkinson's disease and all kinds of other things and attributed it to COVID. So we know that there's a lot of fraud in the counting. We know that politically they took the numbers in April of patients who died in April and added them to the July numbers to create the illusion that there was a spike there. And you might ask yourself, well, why would they try and make it look like there was a spike of deaths in July? Well, this was when the blue state governors were implementing mask mandates and lockdowns, and the red state uh, red states were opening up and not having mask mandates. And because politics got involved in our mes- medicine, it became imperative that they show that the mask mandates and the lockdowns were effective and that they were saving people's lives and that red states were being irresponsible and sacrificing lives for the sake of opening the economy. And it was all a fraud. 
Now, I can see this clearly because I've been following it day to day, and I'm educated on the numbers. And another thing, I have access to the hospital. So I can go in and actually see the number of patients that are truly um, suffering from COVID. Now, just to kind of put this in perspective and how important this is, we know that the CDC has already said that the mortality rate is something like 0.026%, which is about um, a Hong Kong flu level, meaning it's at a level that we've seen before, and it's certainly not a death sentence. In fact, we know that if you're in 70, if you're between, uh, if you're in your 70s and 80s, you have a 94% chance of surviving if you get infected. So that means people in their 70s and 80s are still unlikely to die of covid but they're most vulnerable and if you're uh if you're younger or school-aged children you have less risk of dying of covid than you have of dying of influenza now i'm asking you guys before the pandemic how many of you walked around terrified of the of the flu i certainly didn't now we know that in 2018 supposedly 80,000 americans died of influenza well, if you're looking at a hundred or two hundred and eight thousand, and we were to cut that by half, and trust me, the fact that these numbers could be inflated by half is would not surprise me at all. And I, the reason that I'm making this educated guess is I've been treating patients now for coming up on eight months, and I see what's going on, and we are not seeing these massive deaths that the media is continually trying to portray. And to not lose our focus here, the point I'm trying to make is that when you have government-run health care, that politics affects the medicine that we get, and you can see it illustrated in COVID. So we got these lockdowns political. We got these mask mandates political. Donald Trump went and moved mountains to create ventilators. And look, that's great. But it turned out that ventilators were not really the solution to COVID, but the political winds were going to abuse him if he didn't have enough ventilators. And so Donald Trump, in an attempt to defend himself from political attack, went out of his way to make massive numbers of ventilators. And now we have so many ventilators that, you know, we're shipping them overseas. And not that, not that no good came from it. It just, it was not necessary. And that's the whole point. Government-run healthcare doesn't know what you need. It doesn't know the amount of what you need, and it restricts you from the things that are necessary, and it wastes money. More on this. Uh, Donald Trump knew that there was going to be an attack on him uh, for the deaths that were occurring in New York, so he sent the hospital ship up there, and it was unused. They built a uh, makeshift hospital in Central Park to manage the COVID, and it was unused. All politics, all of these decisions are political. We've got our schools shut down, and we heard uh, one of the superintendents in California basically saying, we're not going to open the schools up until after the election. So you can see we have our medical care being dictated by politics because we have so much government penetration in our health care. And if we were to get Medicare for all, you would see a complete loss of control of your medicine. I mean, as it is, our control of our health care is already uh, so, so controlled by government that we really don't have a whole lot of choices. The people that want to switch us over to government-run health care 
are doing everything in their power to make you believe that you still have choice, but you really don't. We have a few insurance companies. We all know who they are, right? Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Aetna, Cigna, Humana. Why do we only have so few? Well, there are regulations, both at the government level and the state level, that prevent competitors from coming into the marketplace. And that's why when you go to your job, they basically have one or two plans for you to choose from, and they're not great. I have the same problem at my at my office. I'm trying to provide my my staff with the best possible health care, but I only really have one or two choices, and it's because of this government control that is preventing a marketplace from getting involved. And as a result, we have these massively high uh, premiums and massively high deductibles uh, uh, for our Obamacare. And it's utterly ridiculous. The I, during the debate, Joe Biden made the statement that that if we were to repeal Obamacare, that a hundred million people were are going to lose their health care. This is ridiculous. Those people had many of them private health insurance that they loved. When Obamacare came around, they got pushed onto Medicaid. Now Medicaid is not a great insurance plan. It's got very limited coverage. It it reimburses providers at such a low amount that providers are not incentivized to see them. And so it's very difficult for a Medicaid patient to find a a doctor who will take care of them because there just certain aren't enough slots available. The Oregon plan uh, was research. Sorry, the Oregon study that looked at Medicaid actually found that patients with no health care had better health scores and did better than patients on Medicaid demonstrated that Medicaid was actually worse for people than not having any health care at all. So we have this situation where the uh, Joe Biden is promising Medicare for all, and they use it. They use the term Medicare for all because they want you to believe that it's going to be Medicare. It's not going to be Medicare. It's going to be Medicaid. And that Medicaid is actually going to turn into the VA system. Once they have total control of the health care, you are going to see complete loss of your health care freedom, and the cost is still going to go up. You know, they talk about it. You don't, Bernie Sanders is famous for saying it. Oh, you don't pay for it at the point of service. Yeah, they take it out of you in the form of taxes. I mean, people, you have to understand right now, our country spends about $3 trillion a year um, in government spending. I'm sorry, we, we spend $4 trillion a year in government spending. We only take in $3 trillion in our taxation, okay? And by the way, the, tra- the Trump tax cuts has led to more revenue to the federal government than we had before. And the re- you might say, well, how can that be? We're taxing people at a lower rate. How can we getting, be getting more money? Because the lower taxes leads to innovation and the expansion of free market business that creates a greater tax base. So you have more people paying less money. And the the result is that the government actually gets more money coming into the coffers than they would with the higher tax rates. So it is absolutely crucial that we continue with the low taxes, especially because our spending. We we've added another three or four trillion dollars of spending to try and tackle the the uh, coronavirus outbreak, and now you've got people that are talking about 
socialized medicine or a Medicare for all that is upwards of $30 million, I'm sorry, $30 trillion. Even I'm getting confused with these numbers, but $30 trillion. And we all know that's ridiculous. Whenever they say it's going to be $30 trillion, it usually ends up being a couple of hundred trillion dollars. And then they want to do the Green New Deal on top of that. This is utterly ridiculous. And uh, President Trump was actually correct when he said if if Joe Biden wins and we implement socialized medicine, which is what Medicare for all is, that the 180 million people who actually have some form of private health insurance now are going to lose that and be forced into the Medicare for all system, which is essentially this VA style, one size fits all government run top down system that we know is failing. We know we're failing. And I can tell you that we know we're failing because we're watching it happen in real time in response to this COVID. And the reason that this COVID is an important paradigm for us to review is because because it's a pandemic, the government has basically taken total control of our healthcare system, and we have essentially given up all our rights, and it allows us to see what happens when we have uh, the total government control of healthcare. Now, one of the other important things about socialized medicine is they like to say that everybody has access to healthcare, but we really know that's not true. Uh, there are some people that are a little more, have a little more access than the rest of us, which is always the elites. And it's these political people that are trying to push this Medicare for all system that show us who they are every single day. Now, I've talked on this show many times about the premier of Newfoundland. Back during the Obamacare debates, the world was discussing socialized medicine. The premier of Newfoundland was a proponent of socialized medicine in Canada. He developed a heart condition that wasn't the, and needed a surgery that wasn't even offered in Canada. He traveled to Miami to get his surgery. And when he was confronted by people that were pointing out this obvious hypocrisy, he said, well, it's my health care. I can do what I want. And I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding me. You're literally telling us peasants that we have to accept your draconian, limited, one-size-fits-all, expensive, horrible quality socialized medicine. But when you need something, you get to go and get the top shelf. And and just to kind of point this stuff out, we've seen uh, the mission governor Whitmer's husband, who was trying to go put his boat in the lake and was told, well, there's a the government put a mandate against boats. And he tried to say, well, do you know who I am? Sort of trying to force the person to put his lake in the boat. We saw Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, closing down wineries, but not his family's winery. We saw Bill de Blasio in New York City going to the gym when everybody else was locked in the gym. And when he was confronted by this hypocrisy, he said, well, I'm super important and my health is is necessary, so I have to go to the gym. We've seen Nancy Pelosi and Lori Lightfoot go and get their hair cut when nobody else is allowed to. If you think this isn't going to happen in your health care with socialized medicine, you're sadly mistaken. All right. This was a good show today. I know I put a lot of stuff in there, and we'll pick up uh, some more of it next time. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Look me up on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. Have a great weekend. I'll see you guys next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.